Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. As always, if you're joining us for the first time, thank you for being here. Welcome. I promise you're going to learn a ton. This is the show that tells the stories of the founders and investors in the cannabis industry. Today's episode is awesome. It's with Vince of Navis, which is a distributor here in California that's added a lot of technology to automate much of the distribution process. If you're a brand that's thinking about this problem today, whether to build your own sales team and do your own distribution, whether to outsource completely, if you're going through this process right now, you need to listen to this episode. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about Balanced Advisor. Producer Eric and I have started this company specifically to help companies, early stage cannabis companies that just need help, CFO level services, raising money, marketing and video, Kickstarter type product shots. You've seen our work on YouTube. If you need some help, if you want to get your life back, start sleeping again, let us know how we can help balancedadvisor.com. All right, guys, let's get into the episode with Vince of Nabis. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Vince, great to meet you, man. Everybody keeps telling me about Nabis. All my friends, I was talking to Hua about it last <laughs> night, so it's awesome to do the interview. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. I mean, it's honestly a privilege to be here and to talk to, to be talking to you guys. I've heard, likewise, the same amount about your guys' podcast and your show, so I'm happy to be here as well. Good stuff, man. Well, let's get started on an easy one. Yeah. What's Nabis? Nabis is a cannabis wholesale distributor um, based in California. Uh, we have a self-service model where essentially um, brands can go on our website and you know book orders for fulfillment to get their products out to retail um, shelves um, with basically just you know as if they're like booking an uber um, they don't really have to talk to a soul in the company um, and you know we're constantly evolving the product to make sure that more and more of it is automated um, and bakes in a lot of the compliance and the business logic that's involved in getting this regulated product out there I definitely want to get into the product let's start just a little simpler you have a technology background you took a company through Y Combinator sure. you exited it which is also an awesome thing for any <laughs> investor second time founder right yeah um, why cannabis why distribution that's a good question I mean I think as far as uh, technologists go like one of our main things that we always think about is just like what areas of the world can be benefited by technology and particularly in new markets um, where there's a high demand for it and where there's not that much to begin with is is very interesting to technologists and so coming from my background that was something that I've always been interested in um, and cannabis being just like a personal passion of mine I started it with my best friend um, and you know we, we both bonded over cannabis as kids and so this was kind of this like perfect mix of an opportunity for us to get into cannabis technology new market and be able to work together all at the same time um, and as far as distribution goes, I think the, I guess like the, the other side of technology is the fact that it scales really well. So that's something that like really like, you know, resounds very true to um, people who are from technology. And I think, you know, whether you're starting a manufacturing plan or a brand or a retailer, I think it's all great. But, you know, for us, like we got into distribution um, because we thought it was the most scalable thing we could do um, in the supply chain. Um, you know, with right now we have 
two fulfillment center warehouses. We have a fleet of a bunch of vehicles, and um, you know we can basically service the entire state with just that level of like infrastructure footprint. Versus you know for a retailer, which we were considering doing at one point, um, you have to set up all these brick and mortar shops yeah. in every single place, and it's pretty immobile. Um, so distribution was a very scalable thing, and. Um, and, and, and frankly, when we got into this industry, it was uh, we were working with a buddy of ours uh, to help him distribute his pre-rolls across the state. And at that time, everyone was self-distributing. Yep. And so in order for us to get into the industry, we were just trying to learn about it and meet people. So we were like, hey, like, let's, uh, can we just take care of your product for you? And you don't have to do it. We'll just, you know, the benefit to us would be we would meet your industry partners and we'll deliver your stuff for free. Um, and then that in itself, kind of snowballed and became this business. Very cool. Yeah. Super organic, just like how yeah. just had a problem. Yeah, needed, exactly. Needed to solve. So the, the distribution landscape is getting sort of more nuanced, right? There's people like yourself, that Navis, that do the technology and the fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Then there's like technology-only platforms, more just like marketplaces. Right. And then there's fulfillment-only, like, oh, we'll just get it there for you, yeah. however you sell it. Like, mm -hmm. how did you kind of decide on this model, and, and why is this the right model? Yeah, so we basically have like a full distributor model with a software layer on top. And so, like you said, there's like people cut it up in different ways. Um, and for us, I mean, we did start with just fulfillment, just the logistics and transportation side of things. And as that scaled, we kind of layered the website on top of it to make sure it, you know, automated, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the I guess like the procedural things were automated. Um, and then we kind of saw an opportunity where, um, you know, because we have this physical distribution backbone that we show up at 80 85% of dispensaries in the state time and time again, you know, on a monthly basis, um, you know, it gave us an opportunity to say, hey, what else can we do with this infrastructure that we've built out? And so sales being kind of like a natural uh, progression um, and, and frankly, one of the roles and responsibilities uh, that you can have under a distribu distribution license in California, um, we were thinking, hey, like, why don't we just sell some additional products um, and, you know, there would be no additional cost to delivery. Um, we would basically just have to hire some really great salespeople who understand the product and the market and have the relationships with the retailers to be able to sell the product. But ultimately, the costs would be already factored into the logistics and um, the margin would be there naturally. Yeah, no, it makes sense from a business perspective. One of the questions I always have for distributors is like, okay, so you have this catalog of products mm -hmm. that you're selling into dispensaries, stores, I guess we're supposed to call them these days. Yeah. I don't know. But, <laughs> but so you walk in as a salesperson, they can't go to each store that often. Mm -hmm. How do they know what to pitch? And if I'm a brand that's trusting your salespeople, yeah. how often am I being discussed, I suppose? Uh, as a brand, you yeah. mean? Yeah, so as a brand, like I guess the main gripe with uh, distributors is that it is like an extra added layer between them and their totally. end cons yeah. customer. And so that's why a lot of people don't like it. Um, and, and, and of course, like we take a cut of it as middlemen. So people, you know, no one, no one likes a middleman. Um, but one, I guess it's a state requirement um, to go through a distributor, and that's mainly for, you know, to, to guarantee the integrity of the product. So we handle things like compliance testing and taxes and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there is a value to having us in the ecosystem. And, and in addition, um, I actually gave a presentation about this the other day um, to the SF Browning Democratic Club, Browning Mary Democratic Club. And, 
a lot of people were kind of having the same like level of confusion as why distributors exist. And you know, a lot of it is that you know we are able to bundle together a solid menu of products that um, you know, as a retailer, you're more likely to set up a meeting with a distributor who has a full menu and get the whole rundown in an it's hour. Efficient. It's, it's efficient right. versus like setting up meetings with every single brand. So from a brand's perspective, they, you know, a lot of times for smaller brands at least, they might not get that meeting. And for us, like we can walk in and like show them the whole catalog of, of, of products and be able to p and be able to get their product in front of retail buyers. Um, and as far as how we prioritize, it is it's something where you know, we have this fulfillment model where we bring on, you know, we try to help scale as many brands as possible. And depending on which ones that we see are doing pretty well, then we try to help them out with uh, additional sales exposure. And so that's how, we, and, and obviously it has to fit into, it has to complement our menu. And so when a, when a buyer goes in, or when we go in to meet a buyer, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be pitching like the whole spectrum of products that we do sales for. We wouldn't really bring on products for sales that we wouldn't feel comfortable pitching. Sure. Yeah. But the mix becomes really important, right? Right. Because yeah. you can't sell like four vapes. Right. It gets kind of confusing. Yeah. How, how do you think about that? And how much do you vet the brands that you sell? Like, how much is that catalog mix relevant? Um, yeah. I mean, the that's definitely a good question. Like, you know, different product types, the same product types definitely step on each other's toes. Um, for us, like, you know, we try to make sure, like, price is one point of discussion where when we compare products of the same category. But um, I think a lot of it is also like brand and uh, like brand identity and the image and the marketing of it that can be differentiated, even if it's like a vape of the same product category of the same, you know, even underlying uh, strain. Um, but ultimately, it's like the branding that matters. We actually ran into this recently with a, um, two different flower companies that, um, you know, wanted to, I guess, like we, were, we had on our menu. And they were selling at the same price point, but one of them was a lot more like female focused, and it didn't really cater towards like the strain, but more so like the effects and like the 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 kind of brand identity that went along the positioning. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that I mean, ultimately, I, I guess the line we draw in the sand is if a retailer can understand that there's a difference in the product and not just by chemical composition, then like you know, then we'll we'll we can bring both of them on board. Mm -hmm. And how much sell through is relevant? Like if you have a brand that's not performing well mm -hmm. on the platform or in the catalog like you kind of have a, a difficult balance there, right? <laughs> yeah. They're your client, but you're yeah. like, hey, we may be doing better if we were servicing someone else. Is that has that happened yet? Yeah. So I mean, um, I mean, I guess like sell through. It depends on the product category. So like for flour, it's a very high velocity kind of um, a market uh, or a product category. Same with like vapes. But then when it comes down to like concentrates or uh, like topicals and things like that, like people are only down to try like you know, one or two units of each. So a lot of times, you know, we're also still learning as far as how fast product moves through our inventory. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we haven't really like shied away from, we haven't really like turned anyone down for sales or like taking people off our menu. Um, it's mainly just, uh, you know, we're, you know we've, we haven't even filled it out yet to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we keep everyone on and we make sure to pitch everyone equally. Got it. So I think in the industry, Navis is most well known for the technology mm -hmm. that you've built. Um, 
it's no surprise, given that you had a software business before. What did you learn from Scaffold? Is that what it's called? Uh, scaffold, like scaffold. with a soft pH. pH, got it, <laughs> cool. Give us the one-liner for that business and then like what sure. you learned and brought into Navis here. Yeah, um, that's actually a great question. So Scaffold was a, it was a backend as a service platform. So effectively it was a developer tools company that sold a essentially a software development platform for software engineers. Um, and it helped them build apps easier because they didn't have to set up their own backend infrastructure before they got started with like building their website, which most people find more enjoyable anyways, because sure. it's like the UI, the part that the customer actually touches. The creative part. The yeah. creative part. Yeah. And so, you know, we took kind of the, the plumbing out of building web apps or, or building any type of app even. And, you know, we ended up scaling that company to about 6,000 apps running concurrently on our platform. Okay. Um, and then that ended up joining AWS, um, Amazon Web Services, and now it's a product called AWS AppSync. Okay. Um, and so, you know, the I guess the learning from that is I think, you know, because it was a developer tools company, um, just gave me so much exposure to all the various different tools out there on the market because they either were competitors or potential partners to integrate with or you know just different tools that we could even use to bake into our platform and so like for this for this kind of company it's it's almost like I can kind of take from that tool belt of uh, you know just like technologies and libraries and whatever we used to use and kind of apply it here um, Based on what I learned from that, that worked for you know six thousand apps, and so it, it makes a uh, it makes kind of like picking solutions and you know tools a lot easier for this kind of industry where we're only building one app um, for our business. Um, that's not to say that we might not license the software um, out to other distributors down the road in other okay. states, perhaps. But um, you know it's something where at least for now we're trying to you know, dog food our own product and make sure that it's good enough for at least our use before. We we have someone else try it out and use it. Got it. You mentioned Amazon bought you. That's sort of the holy grail for a lot of founders out there in the world, right? How do I get out of this business? Like, it's great to start it, but yeah. eventually you're supposed to make some money and get, yeah, get sure. out, right? <laughs> um, what do you think most people don't understand about being acquired or having an exit from a business like that? Yeah, I mean, so to be clear, like our exit wasn't big at all. It, yeah. was, like, it was like an aqua level kind of deal. and. You know, for us, I, I think for me personally, actually, it's every like I think when you go through an acquisition or any sort of like company end of life kind of uh, phase or period, there is actually it's it's very personal. I think because you've you've sunk in so much time into this thing, so much like blood and sweat and it's tears, and it's your baby, yeah, exactly. And you know, to have that all end and like owned by someone else is uh, is very personal. Um, and so it's it's uh, I mean, there's, it's bittersweet. I would say it's it's nice that um, you know you have a great story, maybe make some money, um, and like your product, your vision lives on with like effectively infinite resources at a large company like this. Um, but then, in this case, it did. I mean, it's a yeah. product. That, yeah. That's kind of rare, actually, it is, right? Yeah, it's it's still, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess for us, for, for me personally, I just felt as though, uh, you know, the bitter part of it was that I never got to scale the company past a seed stage company. And, um, you know, that, that gives me a lot of, like, motivation and kind of drive for this company to get past that stage to really scale out. Because, um, you know, I, I've kind of already checked the box of, like, 
you know, seed stage company that like somewhat made it to success. And you know, the this company I have no interest in selling early. So like, it's just more of like a personal thing as well to to help continue drive this company to scale. Got it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the software. Sure. Why do you think people gravitate towards that? What's different about Navis's software than anyone else? Sure. Yeah. I think you know, in the industry, there's a lot of uh, like. I guess I'll start by saying like what the software actually does. Yeah. So um, you know, as a brand, it's it's mainly brand facing. We work with two types of people: we work with brands and we work with retailers. Um, it's very brand facing right now. It basically helps facilitate a lot of the order booking um, and inventory and a little bit of like analytics and reporting and like financial accounting on the website. Um, so that way, you know, as a brand, when they're working with a distributor, um, it's not so much like a black box. Like they're not just like sending product and then all of a sudden it's out there in the market and they have no idea what's going on with like, you know, as it's going through our distribution flow. And um, the website really serves as like this layer of transparency to our brands to say, here's how much inventory you have in all these different locations. Um, here's the status of your pending orders that are going out for fulfillment. Um, and then here's some reporting as to say who you sold it to and all that sort of jazz. Um, and so, you know, how it's different is that a lot of, uh, I guess like some distributors, a lot of distributors don't even have the technology. They just basically call or email or text. And some who are like a little bit more forward thinking have applied technologies from, you know, other industries to fit this this one, but then at the end of the day, it doesn't have so much of the business logic and the compliance rules um, from this specific industry baked into it. Um, and that was kind of like a concerted decision of ours, whether we wanted to outsource a lot of this stuff or build it in-house. And um, frankly, we decided to build it in-house because of the fact that, um, you know, our, our ops team can just like yell over their shoulders and be like, hey, like engineering team, like we need this built like ASAP. And like, instead of calling someone offshore to like figure this out, like we can basically just make the change within 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we constantly have to like, our, our departments all lean on each other to like, evolve our business and it's important that I think that all of them everyone works together kind of in the same room and um, you know ultimately like we do a lot of specific things with our software as far as like um, generating the you know compliant manifests um, making sure that you know we have like tax calculations baked in um, making sure that we have all the dispensary information in our system that gets updated frequently um, POCs and you know all, all the kind of um, you know like sample rules um, you know the uh, I guess certain like um, I mean different dispensaries have like different requirements when they deliver so all of that information is essentially baked into our website that you know if you if you were to go shop around on the market for other industry tools that have for instance say like inventory management or order booking management it wouldn't necessarily have these cannabis specific pieces mm -hmm. got it yeah. let's talk about the buyers in in dispensaries sure it's sort of this like mythical creature to a, to a lot of people in the cannabis industry yeah like, yeah like are they just buying from their friends like how have you seen that evolve in the time that you've been doing this? Like, are they ready to come to a marketplace and find new products? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're fully, uh, they fully come around to it yet. I think eventually it makes sense. Um, 
but you know for us like we still do our own like foot salesmanship um, we we have account managers that go out build the relationships personally go to the stores and like give the samples do the sales tell them about the product and the story behind it um, and you know we the, the next thing we're trying to build is basically like a online menu for ourselves um, to make to help facilitate um, a lot of the uh, reordering process and making our lives easier as far as automating that um, but you know, I do see a lot of these like B2B marketplaces uh, succeeding down the road because, um, you know, they have that scale. Um, and, you know, for instance, like uh, Cannily or like LeafLink or any of those guys have a lot of exposure to retailers. Yep. It's just about like changing the behavior of how they buy. Um, I think what what might be a good like first entryway into converting these retail buyers that might be skeptical about buying on a B2B marketplace is um, at least automating like the reorder process because that's something that you constantly just have to recurringly do every single week. Um, not necessarily like, I mean, I mean, I guess it's good for also like product discovery as well because you just don't know what else yeah. is on the market. Yeah. Um, so I think those two things will help them succeed as long as they continue to drive that behavior in retail buyers. Got it. Give us some sense of traction today. Like, what are the KPIs that you look for? Like, what's the sure. first thing you check in the morning? You know? Yeah, first thing I check in the morning, probably like number of deliveries that we're doing that day. Also, uh, like obviously revenue, uh, gross merchandise value of products we're delivering, um, and then also just like number of dispensaries we're delivering to. Um, so, I mean, just to give you some high levels, you know, right now we have about like 30 to 35 brands that we currently work with, okay. and then we ship them out to. Um, um, probably like 85 to 90 percent of dispensaries in California okay. save for like the new dispensaries that pop up or so that's like give or take 300 yeah. stores something uh, like that a little over 400 a little four, four. yeah okay. so like I think there's about 500 licensed dispensaries yeah. in the state yeah. um, and you know some come online some go offline yeah. some yeah so um, you know it's a pretty large footprint and you know our, our job now is to basically help the brands that we work with grow um, and in addition to that, help them, you know, help help stock more brands into retail shelf space. Um, so whether that be, you know, onboarding more brands or, you know, just having, um, you know, more delivery times available for retailers, um, that's something that ultimately improves our SLA for our partners. Um, and then as far as like gross merchandise value of products shipped, um, we ship about like 750K of product um, on a weekly basis. Okay. And, um, you know, that allows us to basically make a good cut on that. Our, you know, our pricing model essentially is a percentage of the GMV. So that basically makes, uh, you know, make, allows us 15, to make more money. 20, 30, <laughs> am I in the right range there? Or? Yeah, so for full fulfillment, we basically charge anywhere between like 10 to 12 percent. Okay. Um, and that is dependent on volume. So, you know, we start with like 12 and a half percent and then, you know, it scales down depending on how much you're shipping with us over time. And then, you know, for sales, that's like an additional fee. So ultimately, our full distribution service could cost anywhere between 17 and a half percent of merchandise value to about 22 and a half percent. So if you just want to do the fulfillment piece, yeah. do you, how much do you work with the cannolis of the world or these other sort of just B2B marketplaces? Like, do you play nicely with them? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something as far as 2019 goals uh, come is uh, we definitely want to integrate with as many software partners like them as possible um, just because I think it allows us to get an additional layer of exposure to the market. Um, 
I think uh, we've actually with Candily we've tried to you know make uh, some sort of semblance of like a POC before and and uh, you know it's one of those things where I think it's highly valuable um, and we definitely want to you know spend resources to do it but at the time we were so small that like we couldn't really maintain like a whole separate API just for this one marketplace where you know we were already strapped on engineering resources and things like that so but you know come time for 2019 um, it's it's something that we would love to do and kick back up cool yeah, yeah. that's something that's so needed in this industry yeah so a lot of people are very protective of their products mm -hmm. and I don't think it benefits them yeah uh, that's that's a lesson that I think a lot of people from technology learned and needs to be applied here so cool yeah cool to hear that um, let's talk a little bit about the alcohol industry. Sure. Sometimes it's a good comparison, sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. For distribution in particular, what did you kind of learn from them and mm -hmm. are there good pieces of that model? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, uh, it's interesting you bring that up because I think generally people agree that that's the closest proxy to, uh, to, to this industry, to cannabis. Um, and you know, I think in a lot of ways it's similar. It's like a vice. Um, you know, yep. it's a, it can it's a pretty large industry. Very regulated. Very yeah. regulated. Um, used to be prohibited. Um, and so you know there are a lot of similarities like that. And so for from an investment perspective or from just like a general consumer perspective, you can expect things to. I mean, it's reasonable to expect things to grow in that direction. So I I do think that things will start consolidating. Right now, there's like tons of brands. There's tons of. I mean, there's like quite a few distributors even and there's um, all, you know the the landscape of retailers are kind of like all across the board um, from like small delivery businesses to like large retail chains and so you know ultimately as the alcohol industry grew like there, it will be I think it's still like it still will be like a state-by-state state kind of growth just like how in alcohol there's different regulate there's different regulatory bodies like there's ABC that's in charge of like the alcohol beverage control is in charge of just like alcohol like liquor sales in certain states, tax rates are different per state. Um, I know, like you know, in certain states like New York, you can just buy it at a liquor store, or you can just buy it at a convenience store. And I think cannabis will kind of serve, will kind of follow that pattern. Like each state will have its own um, kind of taxes and regulations and way that you can purchase it, or way that it ends up in consumers' hands. Um, just because right now it's federally illegal and companies like ours will have to scale state by state and figure out the rules individually and then even after it becomes federally legal like we're still going to be stuck with the same infrastructure that we once had sure so that you set up already, yeah. exactly so that's um i think ultimately that's that's what's going to happen with uh with the cannabis space and, and, and how it's similar with the alcohol space um yeah looking into the future a little bit um most everybody gets everything from amazon mm -hmm. and is that going to happen? Is we're going to get cannabis from Amazon? Is it going to be like Prime Now? <laughs> you know, like I'm going to get my shop and save like once a month delivery of everything I need. Like I think, you see that? Yeah, I mean, I think like there's definitely room for it, and I think people can wrap their head around that idea. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's CBD. There's lots of CBD products, lots of hemp products. Lots of Amazon. hemp products. Yeah. It's uh, federally legal now, and I mean, I think though that uh, it will have to be a behavioral change from the consumer standpoint. 
Um, but there are definitely whole business models, whole businesses that are raising money, tons of money just to build Amazon for wheat. Yeah. Um, and as far as like, for instance, there's one called Flower Co. That's doing on like, the show. Was on the a show. Weeks ago, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Tony. Yeah. Tony. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know they they're basically building like Costco and Wheels. I mean, I, I don't want to butcher their pitch, but like, um, that's how I interpret it at least. Um, I think that's a comparison he likes a lot. <laughs> okay. Yeah, cool. For yeah. Sure. And 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 then there's like other platforms forms like you know there's obviously like econ platforms there's like ease and there's uh you know there's uh i guess more b2b ones as well um that are kind of similar to how like alibaba grew once before it's like a b2b marketplace versus a b2c one but i think i think ultimately that's like the most scalable way to get to a retail consumer it's just a matter of how much people buy on a recurring basis because like with Amazon they started with you know books and they started with a lot of like um, things that you could essentially like resell like books the lifetime value of a book you can constantly like sell back and forth and it doesn't get consumed ever and Amazon can constantly make a little bit of a cut every time that gets sold Um, and and you know in the same way I think I mean well I guess what's a little different about cannabis is that it gets consumed and I'm not sure if it's like right now because there's so much hype in the industry that people are just buying a ton of cannabis um, on these on these like sh- at, at a shop or on these different um, marketplaces um, and eventually that might die down just because like you know you might like right now you don't go into the store and buy like 10 handles right. but like just because it's like novel <laughs> like you go do it <laughs> like I was in Vegas at the uh, MJ biz conference and there's this store like right on the strip that basically I walked in check it out and like people were purchasing like five six hundred dollars you know basket of goods uh, and like you would never walk into an alcohol store and buy that much no. at one time <laughs> like yeah but the other difference is there's bars yeah right there's this social consumption piece which Mm -hmm. kind of allows people to like okay I don't need to hoard all this product at home like the experience of being out in the world and everything anyway yeah kind of a tangible but maybe Amazon will buy your second company too maybe (laughs) yeah Yeah. that'd be a funny outcome yeah but Um, I do think that's a valid way to get more product out there too it's just like uh, public consumption or like private consumption in a public space or public consumption in a private space, like a weed bar, for instance. I know there's companies that are trying to build like Soho houses of yeah. cannabis. Yeah, there, I think in West Hollywood alone, there was like 80 applications for lounges. No way. Last year, like that, like West Hollywood's gonna have it'll have a nice weed lounge. bars. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's gonna happen. For there's sure. a couple in the city, I'm sure you know, but yeah. they haven't quite got the social element right yet. I think. Right, it's right. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I know like Barbary Coast has their own little lounge, which is probably the best, right? Yeah. There's Harvest on Geary, which, mm-hmm. but if feels more like this is a place you can consume rather than a place you want to hang out yeah yeah you know they're yeah, not quite there yeah 100 yeah. percent. and i mean i think that'll that might change i think that will very well change mm-hmm. over time uh, let's talk about fundraising a little bit sure. something you've been through before mm-hmm. um how much have you raised what was that process like yeah so to date we've raised 1.8 million now um for our seed round uh, the process was different, uh, to say the least, than like um, fundraising for like a traditional kind of company, like a tech or a finance company or whatever it may be. 
just because of the fact that it's a cannabis industry and it's like there's a lot of regulatory restrictions and the fact that it's a vice, people might not be morally comfortable with investing in this. Uh, kind there's of a product. lot of funds that just have vice clauses. It's like, yeah. no, we're not doing it. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and people run into banking issues. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of like constraints or like friction to getting money into this market. So when we were raising our seed round, it was, um, you know, it was actually, there was actually a lot of friction. We, you know, we kind of learned to develop our pitch to say like a couple of qualifying questions first. Like, hey, can you, like before I give you my full pitch, like can I, uh, do you, can you, do I have restrictions on investing in cannabis plant touching businesses? Or, you know, like what, uh, who are your LPs? Cause you know, part of the state licensing requirements are that you have to um, disclose your financial interest holders. And so a lot of people aren't comfortable with that, even if like the LPA um, agreement is, is, is uh, you know is okay with cannabis and so there's a lot of these like qualifying questions that we ask that you know we learned over time to do before we give like a Save 30 a minute lot of time yeah yeah, yeah you, you come i had this happen a lot where it's like 30 minute hour-long meeting come down to it and they're like oh cool we were just doing a little bit of research like we actually can't do this type of investment i'm like well you know i'm not here to like teach you all this right. stuff <laughs> that would be nice to know yeah before. exactly <laughs> exactly uh how much more money do you think you, you're gonna need like you know, when you look at sort of the future of the business, like yeah. all in, how much do you think you need? All in would be hard to say, but I mean, I think as far as our 2019 goals are, um, we really want to just dominate California and win more market share here, because I think it's going to be such a huge influential market on the global stage of cannabis even. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, as far as expansion into becoming a multi-state operator, um, you know, other states will require a lot of capital down payment as well. So in order to kind of achieve, so like there's kind of like two goals there. One is to dominate California. I think that's, we, we've already kind of like laid down our infrastructure footprint here um, to cover the full state. So a lot of that spend will go towards like marketing and um, building up our product to scale. Um, and then as far as like expanding into new states, a lot of it will become, you know, again, the same kind of down payment on infrastructure, buying a fleet, um, um, you know, getting fulfillment centers to really, you know, cover that side of things. Um, so, you know, as far as like the next round, we'll probably need, you know, a good chunk of change, um, you know, multiples of what we raised before, just to get, just to be able to achieve both agendas at the same time, yeah. you know, dominate this state, expand out of state. Got it. Yeah. You talked about marketing, you brought up marketing a little bit, which yeah. is quite a challenge. It is quite a challenge. In the cannabis industry. How are you going to market? What's kind of the plan there? Yeah, I mean, with marketing, so we've tried, we've kind of experimented with a lot of channels uh, so far. You know, obviously, you can't use Google, you can't use Facebook; they'll shut you down. You can't use Instagram. Right. Um, and uh, you know, we actually gotten our Instagram shut down recently because we tried to market on Instagram, <laughs> um, and and you know, that actually leaves a lot of room for these events and like print ads and billboards to like buses buses yeah. exactly a lot of these like physical it's things like 1985 in the it is yeah. exactly and that's why like in the bay area in california in la like huge ease posters like huge like uh you know brand uh billboards yeah. that just like go up and like it pretty much dominant it's like half tech and half cannabis now right. it's insane right because because there's because at least right now in the in the industry there's so much like there's, there's a good amount of like capital influx from like canada being legal now um so those guys can come in and bring money in and i think investors are generally coming around to the idea of it that um you know these brands and these manufacturers are 
or these retailers want to uh, they want to spend on marketing and they have the budget for it, but they don't know where. So there's actually a, like this huge bottleneck of marketing dollars to spend. And you know, we for us, like we've tried events, we've tried um, you know general just like website SEO practices and uh, PR. And I think like the best is probably just like PR. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's you know pretty high in terms of like ROI because sure. you know it's, it doesn't cost as much as like a booth setting up a booth at an event where you have to like sponsor and get a bunch of tickets and stuff. And um, you know I think like for events it's pretty uh, like it's pretty like pretty like a, much like a one-time thing. You like go, it's like a burst of like energy and then it just fades. I used to run a big event mm -hmm. and uh, the ROI to explain to brands is really tough. Mm. It's like you just have to get them excited mm -hmm. about doing it. But then on the back end, it's like, okay, what are you looking for? Are you looking for signups? Are you looking for like one new customer here? Sure, like, yeah. It can be a lot trickier than the digital right. advertising stuff. Which yeah, is exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Okay. Uh, I love to learn about sort of the founder behind the company. Okay. Um, given that it's a cannabis company, like how has your relationship with cannabis sort of evolved? I know you said you were kind of a consumer uh -huh. prior, to, but yeah. how has it evolved in this process? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I guess like when I was a, when I was young, like I, in college, like I, I used to smoke all the time, so that was my relationship as, just as a consumer. And then like I kind of like after I got a job, like I wasn't smoking as much anymore. I was just like busy with other things and. Um, I guess like trying out other forms of entertainment, and then, <laughs> and then, uh, and then now like being in the industry, there's, it, it's kind of like it's a different, it's very different kind of relationship. I have so much product around me now that it almost feels like I'm just transporting like paper or like stationery or whatever. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like product to me. Um, that like I. I don't know, I guess I almost don't feel the need to smoke it every day because there is such a huge copious amount of it nearby, near me. But it's it is- It's not like owning a bakery. It's like owning a bakery. You, you don't eat the donuts every yeah, day. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and, and so like, you know, I guess my relationship now is that like, I'll smoke occasionally and, and I'm kind of busy now so I can't really just be high all the time. Yeah, yeah. And then oftentimes when I smoke, there's actually this like uh, added incentive to do it to try out a product less less so than just to like have fun, right? Um, and you know, a lot of times it's because it's we, research. It, exactly, there research. you go. Research. <laughs> when you do, what do you gravitate towards? Do you like flowers? Do you like vapes? What concentrates? What are you into? Yeah, flowers good. Um, vapes, if I'm trying to just you know save my throat, um, and you know, I think a lot of it is. Uh, I guess I, I started like dabbing a little bit recently too, uh -huh. um, but ultimately I think like if I were just to have like a go-to thing, it'd just be flour. Got it. Yeah. Uh, in a bowl, joints. Mostly joints. Joints. Yeah. 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 You're a, you're a old soul in, <laughs> yeah. in that way. I think. Um, Talk about some of your peers. I mean, mm -hmm. you had a great technology career. <clears throat> yeah. How do they view what you're doing now? Like, oh, I, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing for like the better part of a year. Yeah. And I mean, my closest friends knew because um, I, I just don't care if they judge me, <laughs> yeah. frankly. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess like it, it wasn't really until um, 
I guess like some like good media came out about us that um, that that's when things kind of changed and it was like oh I guess it's a mainstream thing um, versus before it was like oh he's just being like a sketchy legal drug dealer. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean even in the last year, yeah, I feel like it's changed so dramatically. Yeah, like the number of middle-aged white dudes mm -hmm. that want to talk to me about cannabis is just like skyrocketed. Oh you know? my god, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like so lucky to be in this place in time. Yeah, where like the thing that I love is so relevant. Yeah, you know? like, yeah, it's, it's I, I totally sweet. agree. And you know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, with with my peers and who are just working in tech and would never even conceive of getting into this industry, I think even they are trying. They are getting around to it as well. But you've seen um, a lot of VCs like invest on the side yeah. as angels, which is yeah, cool. exactly. It is, like, cool. yeah, it is very, very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, we talked about KPIs for Navis. How about for you personally in personally? 2019? Hmm. Um, I definitely want to. I guess like, well, my KPIs are pretty aligned with the companies sure. at this point. Um, but I do think um, on a personal level, I definitely want to, you know, uh, I guess like have a little more balance in life, I would say. Um, there's just getting a business up off the ground. There's a lot of just like all in-ness involved. And I think it's not so sustainable because like you get burnt out or whatever it may be. So. And I just want to have a little more balance, like, you know, obviously sprint for like a few months or something and get through fundraising or get through a product development life cycle. But then after that, have like a nice little break, yeah. um, hang out with friends and, you know, just make sure that, you know, there's there's a personal life going on as well. Well said. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a second to plug whatever you'd like. Are you hiring for anything or how can our audience help you? Yeah. Um, we are hiring for like engineers who are interested in building products for front end, back end. What kind of engineers? Both, any type, full stack. Yeah, um, who are interested in getting into the cannabis industry? Um, follow us on Instagram. We are at Navis Official now, um, and then also check out our website www.getnavis.com. Dope, man. This was a pleasure. Thanks so yeah, much. Thanks for having really me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. I'll see you next time.